3: Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and thank you so much for being here with me. As always, this show is a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, and we'd always appreciate a kind review, so if you want to pause it, go leave us five stars, give us a little note about what we can be doing better or worse, we'd certainly appreciate that. You know, in the late 70s, New York City was a bit lost. Abandoned buildings, cheap rents, and a rundown feel was apparent. But in the middle of all that was an up-and-coming artistic scene, and that is what we're going to be talking about today. Our guest is Adele Bertie, who made the move to New York City in the late 70s and made some noise playing in a handful of bands, including The Bloods, which was the first all-female lesbian band who were all out. And as Adele talks about, these ladies like to party like the boys. Adele has a new book coming out called Twist, an American Girl, which is part of a trilogy of books detailing her remarkable life. I have an endless curiosity to learn more about these special times and places such as New York City in the late 70s, and this chat brings us into Adele's version of it. So please join me in welcoming Adele Bertin. Adele, welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. Thank you so much for doing this. It was kind of brought on to me in the last couple of weeks. And I was, I'm about to interview an author who just wrote a book on Alice Cooper. And so I've been kind of going back and forth between that book and your book. I haven't been all the way through it, but I have got enough to be able to put together a pretty good idea of what it is that you're writing about, which is Your Amazing Life. And, um, and... Am I right? Is this book part of a trilogy?
1: It is, actually. It's the first book in in the trilogy. Um, The second book was about Peter Lochner and and my relationship in Cleveland. And he was a a huge figure in underground music in Cleveland and was a member of the band Para-Ubu. Are you familiar Mm -hmm. with Para-Ubu? I'm I'm not. Well, he died very young, uh, which propelled me into... The next memoir, which is called No New York, and I'm working on that right now. That's about the, new, the downtown New York scene in the late 70s, early 80s.
3: Okay, that one I'm super excited about because a couple of my okay. questions are referencing that era because it's such a unique time. Um, I'm really happy that you're doing a book about it. So we've got this amazing book. It's called Twist, An American Girl. And this is dropping on March 14th. For everybody that's listening, I will link it in the show notes here so that they can have direct access to it. But it's a very interesting way that you went about this, in my opinion. So you're portrayed by what you are calling your avatar, Maddie Twist. And I find this portrayal to be just an interesting idea overall. And I'm wondering why you decided to go this route rather than the more traditional autobiographical point of view.
1: Well, to begin with, I've been working on this book for practically 30 years. Of course, not 30 years of steady writing, but in fits and starts because it's such a complex and sometimes dark, very dark story. And I had to figure out, like, what is my way into this story? What's the voice? And I came up with Maddie Twist for a couple of reasons. Number one, having an avatar and a different name allowed me to have a bit of armor like a you know like i was a trojan horse going into battle um, and yes. it really helped helped me stay in the moment of what was going on with me at, you know at, it's it's written in first person active so um it, yeah it really was kind of an armor for me and nothing else is fictitious about the book um aside from the fact that there's a lot of magical thinking involved in in maddie twist's life in order to survive some of the circumstances she's thrown into um but yeah i mean people talk about genres a lot in literature and uh uh this might be called auto fiction because of the fact that i came up with a fictional name but for me it's not Hmm. fiction at all
3: (laughs) i mean just putting a different name on it when I first read that and that you had done it that way, I started Mm -hmm. thinking about it from like a psychological perspective of, and you kind of touched on it with the armor of maybe it's easier for me to write about these difficult times that I have to relive now. If Mm -hmm. I can step outside and kind of be looking down on it and I like a almost therapeutic way of like, I can get more out of myself. I can find more truth. I can, I can do it more if I'm separating myself from the character, which in the end ends up being me.
1: Right, exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, g- going through the war zones of my youth. I mean, there were a lot of battlefields, um, and it worked. It was the voice. Uh, you know, I I have different voices for different books, and this one was so personal and so deep that yeah. Matty Twist was it was the perfect character for it.
3: Did you find that you had to... that Maddie twist is you but is also an avatar did you ever find that you're like oh that's Maddie's story like is there what I'm what I'm kind of getting here too is like I could see a situation where I'm writing and then all of a sudden I tailspin off and now I'm no longer doing my story I've kind of just like adapted into Maddie's story Mm -hmm. and maybe there's like a future for Maddie in another book down the road of like I'm not going to just continue to tell the tale of my life, but now how could Maddie kind of spin off and now just this becomes full fiction?
1: Right, right. Um, I am working on a fiction novel, but it, but Maddie, well, Maddie actually could be the character but would probably be more like her grandmother, you know? Okay. <laughs> but, but, that, but that didn't really spin off um, into fiction for me. The, the fictional part is the creation of the name, you know, Maddie yeah. Twist, because my mother... Was referred to as Kitty Twist, and that was based on a Jane Fonda movie called Walk on the yeah. Wild Side, and um, and also there was the there were nuns in in the reformatory convent that I spent some time in who would force me to sing the Oliver songs, you know, and I always wanted to <laughs> sing the I wanted to sing the Artful Dodger, but they made me do the Pitiful Waif songs, you know, uh, <laughs> like Where Is Love and Who Will Buy and. Um, You know, I kind of took advantage of that because it got me some perks (laughs) that the other girls didn't get. But but uh, so so it was an amalgam of of those ideas, too. And and the fact that, you know, Oliver Twist is such a famous story about orphans and how you can how kids can fall into corruption very easily Mm. when they're abandoned. And that very Mm -hmm. much happened to me, you know, personally. Um, so, so that, that's where the fictional part came in, but the rest of it, the journey and happened, that's all for real. Get it detected. I swear.
3: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I lived (laughs) it. Um, the, yeah, the, the fact that it's that all these stories and everything, and like, like I said, I haven't been able to go through it, but I have been through the first, you know, maybe 50 to 75 pages of it. And it's just, it's just incredible. Like it's so, so much different than my life. And I like, you know, I don't have the same. I came from a broken home, but like I always had some sort of parental figure in one way, shape or form. Right. So it's like an education to me and like that type of thing of growing up an orphan and, and like going through these systems that our government puts in place. And I don't know, it, it, I just find it very interesting just from that respect. But then you are someone who latched on to, um, to music along the way. And I find that to be very interesting because obviously music for a lot of people is this escape. Um, I kind of have a direct question about this, and I'm wondering if it Mm -hmm. might put you on the spot a little bit, if it does take your time to answer it. But I'm wondering if there's a song that you can remember from your childhood that after hearing it just made you think like, this is it. This is music is where um, I want to try and direct this thing.
1: Funny enough, there is one song. And I didn't put it in the book because it was just, I don't know why, maybe because it was so private to me. Um, Hmm. But Roberta Flack did a version of Bridge Over Troubled Water. I listening to that when i was probably 17 um 17 or 18 and it really opened up uh the idea of there being some kind of grace that you can reach for and that there's goodness in people and um it just gave me uh, a face and you know i know that God is so the, the idea of God is so particular to each of us. We all have yeah, our yeah, yeah. personal uh, identification or you know mm-hmm. illustrations of what God should be. But for me, of that God is music, and I would hear God in the voices of, of people as I was growing up. Like for instance, in in the in Blossom Hill the Reformatory, I sang gospel music for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. We were allowed to choose either Baptist. Sundays or Catholic Sundays, and of course the music. So I was like, I'm down with the Baptists, you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, I really experienced uh, something incredibly healing about singing, and they're starting to, you know, science is starting to discover this as well. They're oh yeah start starting to work with veterans uh, that are suffering from PTSD with uh, with music therapy and. Um, and Alzheimer's, you know, people mm-hmm. who suffer from Alzheimer's, if you play them music from when they were teenagers or young, they light up like a Christmas tree. And, oh, they, remember, and they remember all the words and they will start to sing. And wow. I've never seen anything so incredible. Um, uh, I've I've done this with my best friend's mother who's suffering from Alzheimer's and she's from Trinidad so when we put on calypso music which is what yeah. she grew up with she just gets up and she'll dance and she'll know the word i mean it's in- it's incredible so so God, there's I did something- not know
3: that so that's just a wiring a deep wiring within our brains i wonder if that could like start correlating to the idea of not only am i remembering this song but I can start to bring out some memories of my childhood because a lot of times like you'll hear a song and you, you you'll like flash back to a, a, a concert where you might've seen it live or a road trip that you were on that it just like came yes. on at like the perfect time as you're like chasing a sunset or something like that. And mm-hmm. that's, I, f- I find that fascinating. That's great yeah. to hear. Yeah. The
1: other, the other song, if I may, that really uh, affected me as a child was Alfie, um, the Burt, I think it was Burt backrock and Health David. I'm not sure. Maybe it wasn't. But Dion Warwick singing Alfie.
2: For the moment we live What's it all about When you sort it out, Alfie
1: Like when I was, you know, very young, maybe 13, 14, blew my mind because it's such a uh, a song of light and it starts out existentially and then it ends up uh, concluding in love, you know, and it's just just an incredible song. I still listen to it and get kind of weepy.
3: Okay, I find this very interesting now because like my Mm -hmm. as I'm as I'm learning about you and getting ready to to have this conversation, I'm I, I get the rough exterior punk child who's, you know, just not but now you're talking about these songs and both of these songs are more like I'm searching for something warm and fuzzy because maybe the rest of my life is kinda cold and not really that inviting and I'm just looking for something to give me those feelings that I don't get from what a lot of people would get from their family circumstance right, and yeah. so was there a pivot point was there or was this always kind of going on simultaneously and in parallel where you were like i have this punk exterior of like rough and tough gal but at the same time i am just loving some of this more sentimental stuff that really makes me feel something that i'm not feeling in my day to day
1: right yeah i mean the songs that i mentioned i was i was really young i was a teenager just starting to you know, uh, be thrown out into the world. So, and as a kid, you know, you'll probably relate to this, it's really hard to figure out what you're feeling or analyze your feelings. You don't know what the hell's going on, you know what I mean? And and music mirrored that for me. Um, even a song like Jerry and the Pacemakers, "Very Cross to Mersey, it's mm-hmm. such a, such a uh, tender uh, song of longing, you know, for a home, really, because he's talking about England and um songs like that were were always uh, a deep mirroring for me of what I couldn't couldn't untangle in my own feelings and heart so to speak
3: mm-hmm. when did you start writing music
1: I didn't start writing music until I was about 21 and I started writing music with Peter Lochner the guy from Perubu um and we wrote a few songs but um as I said, he died very young, and, and we had always planned to move to New York together because the scene was just bubbling up in, in New York City. And uh, when he died, I, I, I had to carry on for the both of us, so I moved to New York and got involved in that scene.
3: Lovely segue. What year was this, and can you what can you tell me about those first couple of months when you got there was you said that you could kind of from, from where you were before, you could sense that there was something going on there that you wanted to go and try and be a part of. Um, what did you notice when you first got there, and did your expectations meet reality? Just kind of give us a little bit of a detail, which I think is going to give us a little bit of insight into the next book.
1: Right, right. Um, well, for one thing, Patty Smith, to me, Patty Smith was like the Pied Piper of music <laughs> and art and poetry, and, and um, she... Basically, broke that paradigm of what women singers were supposed to look like, you know? Yeah. Or sound like. I mean, the, the Horses LP was extraordinary. It just busted up all gendered expectations and genreed expectations. And I was so inspired by her. And when I got to New York, it was a total dystopian, like crazy, bombed out city. It looked like Dresden after the Second World War. There were buildings yeah. all over that were abandoned and landlords were setting fire to the buildings for insurance money. And uh, I mean, it was a crazy, crazy scene. But at the same time, all of these people and a lot of women for the first time in history came to New York with cameras, with you know, pens, with instruments, and everybody was making art in some aspect or another. And it blew my mind to see what was going on there. I was so thrilled to meet other artists and be able to like survive on very little money because you could get an apartment for $50 a month yeah. and make your art, you know, and perform a couple times and have enough money to just live, uh, which is, you know, totally the opposite now for young people. You yeah. Know? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a really enchanted time and, uh, it, you know, it was rough living in in a certain way, but also... When you're that young, I call it the town of empty New York because there was this haunted feeling of downtown New York. And and you know, when you're that young, you can live on art and art alone. Sometimes, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know
3: what yeah. you mean by that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it it Do you really, think
3: that the okay? Go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No,
1: it it really met all my expectations. It was kind of like a fractured fairy tale in a way.
3: What year was this?
1: 1977.
3: Okay. 77. That's I had like in the 75 to 77 in my head for some reason. Do you Mm -hmm. think that this, this time of New York city where the buildings were more abandoned and it kind of had this dystopian feel that you talked about? Was there an energy there still? Like people talk about New York city and this energy that it gives. And I, Mm -hmm. I tend to agree with it. There's something about it. I tend to take New York city in smaller doses when I go, Mm -hmm. um, but I'm just kind of curious from you, from an artistic standpoint, was there something there that you could latch on to that inspired you and kind of started to propel the career that now we can look back on and know that you had?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the, the circumstances of New York at the time, you know, it was basically bankrupt and um, all of these young people that had moved from all over America and from Europe as well. A lot of people came from Europe. We all kind of knew each other. Maybe there were 200, 250 people. And we, we were all in a community that really launched um, a kind of a revolution. And a lot of it had to do with the women. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think back on that time and, you know, Brian Eno has written something about uh, comparison of genius to genius, And the, the way he describes that is, you know, genius is a, is a specific person, right? But genius is a scene where so many things bubble up and, and, and it's, it's really about the community. And for us, mm. it, it was about the community. Um, we collaborated with each other. You know, if you were a filmmaker you would uh, make a film with the musicians you just saw playing at Maxis Kansas City or CBGB's. And the musicians would raise money so that you could make your next installment of the film. And, you know, I mean, it was all very collaborative and very exciting. So that energy, uh, it was kind of like picking through the ruins of a city and making it our own. And it, the energy came from all of us together working off of each other.
3: Was there a particular area within New York City where this was kind of happening?
1: Oh, yeah. The the East Village and uh, the Lower East Side. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: Stay tuned for more Song Facts podcast right after this.
0: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds.
3: Yeah, that's kind of what I thought about. Okay, so, I, by the way, I love this idea of seniors. Oh, that me too. immediately puts in the head. That, that I jumped decades. I'm like, okay, we got the beatniks in the 50s. We've got the hippies right. in the 60s, punk yep. movement, 70s, hair metal in the 80s, grunge in the 90s. Yeah, we've got five yeah. decades here of, like, seniuses happening all over the place. Yeah. It's pretty incredible when you put it in that kind of context.
2: Yeah, um, for
3: sure. Okay, let's think back to that time. What's the definitive song that came from that scene, in your opinion?
1: Well, when I initially got there, um, what we would end up calling No New York or No Wave because it was kind of a brutalist disassembling of of even punk. Because when you get right down to it, punk is three chord progressions. It's very pop, a lot of punk, when you come to the song structures. So when I arrived in New York, The first person I heard singing, um, well, if you'd call it singing, was Lydia Lunch with Teenage Jesus and the Jerks. And the song that I heard that was just, just blew my mind was called Orphans. In the song, she, it's like a very militaristic beat, very brutalist. And she would sing, little orphans running through the bloody snow. And I, I was like, oh, my God, I'm home. That's me. <laughs> yeah. So, so that really encapsulized for me what that scene was about. It was like all these misfits from all over the world, really, ending up in New York City and creating something ecstatically new.
3: Oh, absolutely. Okay. I love that. And this is like the, the thing that I knew that you might be able to bring to me is and the reason that I love doing this show is discovering new music. So mm. I'm going to be finding these tunes, playing snippets of them as you mentioned them throughout this. And um, I just can't wait to go back and like try and just like, close my eyes and pretend that I'm just sitting there listening to this for the first time in that mm-hmm. age. I just, I love the idea of trying to do that. That's what music does for me.
2: All right, um, yeah. Let's
3: chat a little bit about The Bloods because it's just kind of an interesting, I mean, a very fascinating and monumental time of your life and for music uh-huh. in general. So The Bloods is the first all-female and all-lesbian band. Mm-hmm. And there's something that's kind of mentioned in here that I wanted you to elaborate on if you could. How do you compare the industry treatment, both locally and like, if anything, regionally, nationally of that the bloods received just compared to the male counterparts of that same time period?
1: What's so interesting is that we were real bad girls. We were like the rolling stones. We created havoc wherever we went. You know, we had groupies. We were doing drugs. We were like, I mean, it was all those tropes that you hear about the bad boy rock and rollers, right? We were were living that dream, but we were women. And no, 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 you can't do that when you're women. It didn't matter how great our music was, how great our performances. Um, The fact that we were fairly out lesbians uh, and wild was just, you know, we were treated like total outcasts in the scene. Um, but people like The Clash recognized it, recognized us, recognized the, the actual essence and talent of the band. We opened for The Clash at Bonds um, when they when they did their stint at Bonds in New York. Um, but, you know, uh, having been in the scene, the downtown No New York scene that I was just speaking of, where women could do anything they wanted and uh, against gendered roles, and the guys loved it, and it almost pushed the guys to go further, too, in terms yeah. of risk-taking in art, because here were these women doing all the, all this incredibly risky stuff, so, so you know, we, we pushed each other. And then when I got into the corporate music business, that freedom was completely stripped away from me, um, and it was about control, control, control. You should dress like this. You should talk about this. You should... Di- you know so it was it they really want to mold female artists to uh, a certain kind of sexuality that is going to attract male listeners and viewers and um you know it's funny because my first record on geffen records was a dance hit with thomas dolby he produced uh, it was my solo record on on geffen and madonna's first record came out at that time it was called everybody my record did much better than hers, right? <laughs> but uh, her, basically she started uh, on this trajectory of of like sexualizing herself, like pulling yeah. up her skirts on stage. And it was like a whole different vibe, you know? It was like playing into that kind of slutty girl that, you know, I guess men love. I don't know. Mm -hmm. but but you know I I was uh, diametrically opposed to that and the record companies didn't like it they didn't like it
3: so do you think that even if you're selling selling you're selling out all your live shows you're selling albums that that the record company was still like no I need you to fit in this box even if it's profitable for them they just weren't was it a comfort thing then because it seems to me that if they're not about the bottom line at that point then it must be something else
1: well yeah i mean in my case the, the a&r man just kept screwing things up it was just horrible um and you know he took away all of my support systems my song writing partner my manager it was like you're gonna do things our way which was um i i you know i failed miserably at that and i didn't want that <laughs> but uh <laughs> um but um I think that I think that the corporate music business still does that to a certain aspect. I mean, you don't see anybody like Patti Smith totally no. androgynous, you know, out there singing about the things that she would sing about which were very deep and, you know, metaphysical sometimes. And um yeah, I mean they they prefer feminine women and a lot of the women that succeeded in the 80s, this is very interesting, and early 90s um like very strong women like queen latifah there was a moment there was an enchanted Mm -hmm. moment where women were singing truth to power but then it kind of all disappeared i mean you know people like tori amos and um and then it all just disappeared and it got back to that paradigm of the sexualized woman you know um for the most part there are women that break through and i and i have so much respect for the ones that can but um yeah, it's still very you know, it's a very controlling industry.
3: It Were you kind has of been. at the time just screaming like we have an example of mainstream success of somebody who's doing it differently with Patty Smith, like why do we got to continue to try and like, is she just an anomaly to you guys? Like uh, to me, if I'm you, I'm like, look at example over here. This is an exhibit that we can uh, like, look at, this is what we can do. Let's just keep trying to go after that mold or change things up a little bit. And just, they're just not listening at all. huh?
1: No, I mean, Patty didn't really break through with a pop hit until because the night, which is something she co-wrote with Bruce Springsteen. So That wasn't what was happening at the time that I got signed. Also, you know, nobody was out of the closet. No one, not even Elton John, you know. Ellen DeGeneres hadn't even come out yet. It was a really scary place to be, to be shoved in a closet and told what to do. Um, uh, So, yeah, Patti Smith, she like who she was initially, she became more pop for a minute, and then she kind of reverted back to her wonderful poetic self but that was a long journey for her um yeah I just uh I couldn't I couldn't abide by what they wanted me to do
3: I'm glad I'm very glad that you did that (laughs) I think a lot of people wouldn't have the strength because they'd be like if you do this you can have this 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 and this and this and like that Mm. stuff's pretty attractive to most people and you just were like no I am who I am and I I really appreciate that because not a lot of people get that close and then say, nope, I'm sticking to my morals.
1: Yeah, thank you. But, you know, I look at someone like Amy Winehouse, who to me was just an incredible, incredibly phenomenal singer and musician. I mean, yeah. I don't know if you've heard her sing jazz, but oh, my absolutely. God. Oh, just, you know. And sometimes I also think, because I was drinking at the time that I was on Geffen and not Chrysalis, but Geffen. And um, when they took every everybody that was supporting me away from me, I was drinking harder. And in a sense, I feel like if I had succeeded at that moment in my life by making compromises with everybody that wanted me to, I would probably have gone the same route as Amy, um, because yeah. she she had so many people trying to manipulate her, and she was an addict and couldn't get couldn't get sober, you know. Yep. And even when she wanted to. The people knew that, you know, around her kept feeding her what she needed to to be this fucked up person, so they could end up making the money off of it ultimately. And I yeah. hate to say it, but that happens, you know.
3: Oh, a hundred percent. I remember so vividly back in probably like two thousand six or seven, reading a Rolling Stone article about her, and it was one of the most eye opening articles that I was like, I don't even understand. This isn't about Amy or her music. It was pretty much like the interviewer showed up at her flat in London mm-hmm. and was just talking about how she'd come down, she'd come into the kitchen, smoke a cigarette, have like a five-minute conversation and just be like, oh, I got to just run upstairs and freshen up. And obviously knew what she was doing, um, running up there to do whatever it is that she needed to ingest into her system at that point in time. Right. But I, it was just a very fascinating thing. And then I think it was just, you know, within a year or a couple of years of that reading that, that, that she passed away. And it just was not a surprise at all. Cause I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm someone who's been around that kind of stuff. Like I grew up in a, on a house with drugs and that kind of thing. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. how someone can't keep going at that trajectory. How, how, re- how relevant was that? Was it alcohol and drugs in the scene that you were in there in the, in New York city? Was it just everywhere?
1: Well, you know, I think part of the reason that scene, uh, kind of, splintered and, and dissipated is because of drugs there was a mm. moment in in 70 late 77 78 when heroin started to flood the east village in the lower east side and yeah. they were practically giving it away um mm. and i you know i had friends that od'd during that time that were you know in their early 20s it was tragic um and a lot of people i kn- knew were you know, getting addicted to heroin—it was, was a really bad scene. Um, yeah. I wanted—I wanted to flip back to Amy for one second, though, to say that, you know, how songs can be predictors of fate in a way, too. I mean, rehab. She talks about how her father thinks it's fine that she keeps getting high,
0: yeah. and
1: her father supported that. And after she died, um, this was a few years before COVID hit a couple, no, a year before COVID hit, I had read that her father wanted to create an avatar of her, Uh, you know, one of those, um, Oh gosh, I saw Maria Callas do this. Um, it looks like a ghost. It's very real. What do they call them again? Um,
3: Oh, uh, like a hologram,
1: a hologram. Yes. He wanted to put her on tour as a hologram.
3: Oh my God.
1: So, um, money 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 you know just and, keep going they just yep.
3: figure out a new way to profit off of someone yeah
1: yeah exactly I'm sorry to, to have gone down that road but I think a lot of that goes on in the music business
3: well please don't be because this is fascinating to me I mean we're getting to the age probably within the next by by 2030 I imagine that people will be able to sit at home put on a VR headset and go to a music festival or go to any concert that they want and like get the feeling that they're there. Yeah. Um, So Amy's dad's probably not too far off from realizing that dream and starting to make some money off of her again, which is good and bad, I suppose. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I went, I went to uh, uh, see a hologram performance of Maria Callas and it totally freaked me out. I saw the future. (laughs) (laughs) I mean we could also put on VR, <laughs> VR headsets and be the pop stars and just you know sing yeah. to an audience you know what I mean so AI, AI is coming and it's coming in hard hard and fast yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> absolutely so. um so one of the interesting things is that you you stuck to your your who I am and you didn't let them the music industry do what they do with so many. But in the 80s, you also became involved with some of the biggest acts around at the time, including Tears for Fears and Whitney Houston, which is just incredible Mm -hmm. to think about. So what are one or two memorable experiences that you can share from what I imagine must have been just an absolute whirlwind span of time for you?
1: Wow. Um, There's a few. When I did the Flat Earth with Thomas Dolby, when I recorded the Flat Earth with him uh, in London, we recorded at Eel Pie Studios, um, P. Townsend's studio, and it's right on the Thames. The, the windows face the river, and oh, okay. and uh, Tom had a little boat, and we would I would meet him in Hammersmith, and we would take the boat and take the boat up the Thames to the studio. It was one of the most enchanted moments uh, of of my recording experience, you know. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah, it was really, really wonderful. I I loved working with Thomas on that record.
3: When you started working with some of these bigger acts, did you feel like you were selling out on your scene at all?
1: I think other people did.
2: (laughs) Other people in the scene, you know?
1: Like, uh, I think, you know, I keep thinking maybe I should call my next book uh, You'll Never Punk in This Town Again. (laughs) (laughs) No, but... uh, uh, you know, I I didn't I couldn't worry about that. I mean, I think I think in some ways that's kept me secluded in my own my own fear in some ways for a long period of my life is thinking about what other people think, being afraid of what other people think in terms of what you're doing publicly. Um, and boy, have I learned that you you do not want to do that. You don't want to. Okay. You, you can't hide who you are for you know because you're afraid. Of, somebody might bully you or, you know, disparage you publicly. But
2: um,
1: no, I didn't think I was selling out. I was really excited to work with these people. Um, I met I met Whitney Houston. She had heard a demo that I recorded with my friend Tony C, who ended up writing the song Love Will Save the Day for Whitney. And uh, Jelly Jelly Bean um, needed a second voice on the chorus out of the song. So I got to sing on that record. Um, and meet her briefly. I didn't get to know her, but um, I met her when she was with her friend Robin, and it was just at the time when she was really about to take off and become a huge star, and she seemed so happy to me and so lovely, and she was with Robin, who, for all intent and purposes, was her girlfriend. Yeah. And that's another really dark, creepy story of what can happen to a famous person when they're manipulated by so many people. And when there's so much money, so much money, you know, but, uh, well,
3: I got to say, I got to commend your, your, your ability to, um, go back into the memory banks and find this stuff. Have you found that writing the book has been really good training for that? And that you started to like, like a snowball effect of as I'm trying to recount some of these, like, oh, there's another one, let me get that one down and just make a little mm-hmm. note of it. So I don't forget that one. Like, I imagine mm-hmm. this is a really good exercise to really examine and bring up some things that are hidden deep down in the brain.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I am. You know, I am taking notes all the time. Like I have notebooks, like they're all scribbles. And then, you know, it's going to be very interesting trying to go back. And, and decipher them all. But, but yeah, I do yeah. take notes. And, and it, you know, there's just so much that happened um, in New York City for me. So I'm excited about writing, writing it, you know?
3: Yeah, you should. Be. I mean, from what I've been able to like read, mm-hmm. you're a beautiful writer of metaphors and just speaking in ways that bring my senses into what you're experiencing. I remember for one, for some reason I kind of turned towards the end of the book because I knew I wasn't going to be able to have a, a ton of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was like, I want to try and like figure out like where this goes and where it ends up. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what time period this was, but there was just this beautiful paragraph that I read and it's you. And I think a friend of yours driving across the a bridge in Detroit In Cleveland, yeah. In in Cleveland, okay, in Cleveland. Cleveland. And you were, I don't know what it is that you were going to do, but just like Mm -hmm. within this, there's just like talking about the music and what was on the stereo and just like a cigarette's lit and like it's kind of like you can I can picture the cigarette kind of turning with the steering wheel and ashing out and then your friend asks you a question. And these types of very just descriptive words and phrases that you use Have you just always been a writer naturally like this, or was this something that you've learned over time?
1: Oh, it's definitely evolved over time, and I still have (laughs) so much to learn about writing. But um, what's interesting to me is when I was digging up these memories um, is that, you know, the people that I'm speaking about, they were so important in my life, and I really want wanted people I wanted to be able to create a type. I've always been obsessed with alchemy. Okay, alchemy, not in the sense of taking metals and turning them into gold, but in the metaphysical sense of taking darkness or sadness or longing from whatever hurts, um, you know, we each possess and somehow transmuting those things into something that into moments of beauty and compassion and that's Mm. a big part of my uh process of of writing memoir
3: do you think you're an optimist overall through your life
1: i do i i I think if i had have been if i hadn't have been i wouldn't be talking to you right now because i i think you almost have
3: to be to come from what you came from right
1: yes exactly i mean I, i i don't think i would have survived if i had not had books and poetry and songs like life rafts to show me glimmers of hope and goodness and other ways of living. Um, so I, you know, I, I always reached for those things. I was yeah. always curious and reaching for things that would, um, give illumination and comfort, you know?
3: And I think it makes someone less afraid to try new things if you're going into it with a more obviously optimistic mindset of just like, you know, maybe the grass is greener. What's yeah. the harm in trying? And um, and just kind of holding on to that little bit of hope because, you know, your beginnings didn't leave you too much to have hope for. So that's pretty incredible to me to be able to have that mindset because I think, and you'd probably be able to speak better than, on this than I could, of I think a lot of people in this situation where they can't come from a completely broken home and find themselves without parents and going through the social system that our that our country has for youth people
1: mm-hmm.
3: it could lead to some really dark places and probably more often than not it does.
1: Mm. Very often. And part of the writing of the book, and you know, I, this might be a pipe dream because I don't think that young people read that much, you know, these days. Everybody's <laughs> get that addicted, book on tape. <laughs> everybody's addicted to this, right? But um yeah. you know, I, I kept thinking it you know, even older adults, I mean, it took me decades to unravel what happened to me when I was a child. Um, And maybe this book, somebody's going to read this book and think, wow, if she can go through that, and this is how she did it, maybe I can try being a little braver or taking more risks or not being afraid to change. You know, I think right now, you know, in America, we're, we're all in a period of Deep, deep fear. We've been bludgeoned by so much. And um, I'm just hoping that that there are more artists and more people that will speak to the idea of not buying into the you know, the toxicity that we keep hearing and that's being fed to us and will yeah. reach for reach for other things, reach for literature and and music. And you know, we're a culture that where people are not um not taught to to embrace art as children. Um, you know, uh, we're supposed to be doctors and lawyers and, and make money, make money, make money where yeah. art has become kind of an elitist uh, pursuit. And that bothers me a lot because art should belong to everybody. We should all be making art in some aspect or another. That's the creative spirit.
3: Well, all those doctors, lawyers, everyone that's just searching for that next paycheck, Whether they want to admit it or not, they're they're gravitating towards art in some aspect of their life, and that's um, true. That's true. Yeah. Whether or not they, yeah, exactly. I mean that that might not be what wakes them up and drives them, but they Mm -hmm. might also put on a song when they're in the shower.
1: Yeah, of course. Oh, I'm not judging them at all. You know, I'm saying that when you're a kid, you know, you need you need art. You you know, kids are creative, but I think it's systematically uh, systematically Uh, taught out of them to be artistic and creative totally and to be and i completely
3: agree with you that it shouldn't be because i what i'm trying to say is that it runs parallel with making money like if you're just in that mindset of like i've got to make money the same time that you're making money you're enjoying the arts so, right.
2: exactly. I don't know.
3: I find that very interesting. Um, yeah. Okay. I've got one more for you. This is just awesome. I, I love this so much. I can't thank you enough for coming on and chatting with me because oh, I'm you. just learning about things that I never, never would have before. I oh, had a hard time phrasing you. this question. So if I, if I don't, if I didn't phrase it correctly, teach me, but I'm very <laughs> curious about your the kind of going back um, and thinking about you being at such a pivotal thing with your time with the Bloods and just being at mm-hmm. the forefront of this movement of, of what I I guess I would have to call, you know, queer artistry. Um, I'm curious what you were thinking back then as you guys were kind of groundbreaking to the point where uh, my editor actually brought this up to me this morning. He said, you know, the she kind of paved the way a decade or 15 years later, you have four non-blondes come out and really crack into the mainstream, which is the mm-hmm. first number one, at least top 10. I don't know for sure what what's going on got to, but they were, you know, for gay women who topped the charts. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you think about what your perspective was when you were doing it versus where things are now in the music industry for queer artists. Mm-hmm. And if that's if it's flatlined, if it's kind of gone on a trajectory that you thought, obviously we always have work to do, but where do, what do you think about current times?
1: I, I'm so excited about current times because there are Good. gay women that are, you know, lesbians and, and trans people and all of it who are now stepping into the forefront of the industry and are being accepted and not, I mean, somebody like Brandy Carlisle. oh my God, mm-hmm. the talent of, of this woman and it just it it feels really good to see what's going on with young with younger people right now um with the bloods we you know we wanted to be the female rolling stones and there are moments if you if you see on uh, youtube there's some videos of us uh playing in berlin at a at a women's music uh festival in 1981 and i mean you can tell we kicked ass musically (laughs) But we didn't have a chance you know we didn't have a chance because we were queer and um yeah it was it was a really really hard hard time so i'm i'm really happy to see that women and gay men and trans people all of it are are stepping into the forefront and not being ostracized for their sexuality today i think it's wonderful yeah. they can be whatever they are and they don't have to brag about it or talk it up they can just be authentically who they are, and that's a wonderful thing.
3: Do you think that the Bloods could have done more of a mainstream thing now than they did then? Oh yeah. Do you think that the reach would be more? Yeah. Most
1: most definitely. I think if if our band had have been around today, we would have been on, you know. The Grammys. (laughs) No, but we you know we were good. Yeah, I mean, if you, the problem is there's not much of us recorded because we were gay in a time when you yeah. couldn't be. So you have to search for us on YouTube, but the, you know, there are clips where, you know, we were actually really good. Well, oh, you know. absolutely.
3: It's out there. And, and if you're listening, go check it out. I'm going to actually try and, I did find a YouTube clip today. Because I was like, I need to hear, I got to put a, I, I, try, I try. I had to find some songs of yours and I just wanted mm-hmm. to be able to do that before we chatted. So they're uh-huh. out there. I'm going to try and put those so that people can just simply click and be brought to them because it's amazing. Like it's amazing for so many reasons, but if nothing mm-hmm. else, just to go to that time, if you have a fascination like I do with different eras of music, this mm-hmm. is just something that was very monumental and, you know whether or not the the reason that you're writing the book is there's probably a bunch of them but the one that you touched on here of like maybe someone can read this and find something that a, a light that they didn't see before I love that thank you so much for just breaking some ground and, and being as brave as you have been and please continue to write I think your writing is just beautiful I, I really oh, appreciate
1: thank, your time thank you so much it's been a real pleasure talking to you
3: big thank you to Adele for coming on and chatting with us today. Be sure to check out the book Twist an American Girl, which is dropping on March 14th. And as always, for the stories behind the songs, go to songfacts.com. Have a lovely day. Get
2: your song facts. Get your song facts back.